We don't need the theme tune, do we? Sorry, can we stop? Sorry. Listeners and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast. I'm Simon Sapper. I'm Becky Wright. And in this episode, we're going to be hearing from Andy Hodder of the, from the University of Birmingham about his work on engaging young workers uh, in trade unions. In trade unions and in life, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're also going to be hearing from Margaret Prosser and Mike Clancy as we launch our new commission in support of Collective Voice. Hooray! We finally launched the commission. And we can talk to you all about it. <laughs> that's a project that's going to keep us going into the summer and well beyond but becky you've been to sweden yep i'm like a swede now You're like a swede i'm having cake at every meetings i'm just going to be achingly cool and hip and is there anything about trade unions in your visit there was loads of cake yeah no there was <laughs> listeners you'll recall regular listeners of this podcast will recall that we're great admirers of the tco center in sweden sort of their tuc and they're like a swede campaign which extols the virtues of collective bargaining and how it is an integral thing in Sweden's kind of good economy. Yeah, it explains uh, the, the benefits of collective voice and collective agreement and what it means to living like a Swede, basically. And, and so you, you went out at the invitation of TCO, I think, didn't you? Yes. Um, I, I heavily dropped hints that we would like to go and see them and they very graciously picked up that hint and said, would you like to come along? So myself and a couple of our unions headed out last week to Stockholm. And it was really interesting. We met with uh, five uh, trade unions and also uh, the ad agency that created Like a Swede. So it was, it, and it was really interesting. And, and every union, oh, six unions that we saw, every union that we saw had a really interesting story to tell. But there were a kind of couple of, a few sort of overarching learning points that I wanted to sort of share with everybody. And, and the first one was that when we started, the scene was sort of set for us, which was, you know, 10 years ago, the, there was a massive drop in trade union membership because there were some uh, changes to some of the social reforms. And like most Nordic countries, um, Swedish trade unions have a role to play in delivering on uh, welfare and unemployment benefits and all that kind of stuff. And the changes, I think, kind of made everybody question why they were a member of a union. And it was a massive kind of decline. If anybody's seen that kind of black run of trade union membership in the UK, the, the Swedes had one very kind of similar. The, the difference is they went from 85% or something density to 50. Only 50%. <laughs> and they told us this with, like, panic. And we just went, oh, shut up. And they were literally like, well, we, were, we thought we'd turn into you. That was our kind of worry oh what a great role model to be. and we were like yeah that's legit yeah we're, it's fine what did they do well there was a variety of responses but the thing that kind of stuck for me was that collectively they worked to address some of this 
And when you say collectively, you mean unions collaborated? Collaborated and shared information. And they saw this as a problem within the Federation that they had to kind of deal with. And they initially asked the TCO to do some work, uh, which then, like a Swede, was kind of the sequel to. You know, the key to all of this was sharing best practice and also potentially culture change within the unions to think about what they needed to say and why they needed to say it and what they were trying to achieve. And there were a couple of uh, really, really good examples of of this that we got throughout the, the time. The main kind of challenge was one of the unions, Unionen, set themselves to recruit 100,000 new members in a four-year period. Can I just check? 100,000. 100,000. And this is all in the context of a collaborative yeah. kind of c- consensus that change is, yeah. is absolutely yeah. necessary. Yeah, so two unions merged, and out of that, they were like, well, look, we've got a failing membership, so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to set ourselves a target, and that target was is 100,000. And we were just like, oh, oh my gosh. And just, I mean, in terms of... And terms did of, they achieve it? In terms of the, the size of the population, I mean... You know, it's nine million. <laughs> hmm, okay. So, and then they low came ambition. Around, low, ambi- low ambition, you know, and it was all this kind of like, oh, well, how are we going to do this? And in the end, they got 250,000 extra members. Oh, fine. Losers. <laughs> Losers. <laughs> can we have some? Yeah, can <laughs> we have some, please? Um, but the thing is, is that they're now so successful that they actively redirect 15,000 people a year to other unions. Okay. So people try to join them and they say, no, we're not the right union for you. You need to go to this other union. But couldn't, couldn't that, in some sense, be a weakness in the sense that shouldn't there be a common portal for union membership and people go through that common portal and then get allocated to uh, a union? Well, the thing that comes out of their case study and, and actually all of the unions that we saw on our first day was that they are all uh, industry-specific white-collar unions. So they are trying to build identity within their particular industries it just so happens that one of the unions amongst them has done really well in building up brand awareness and therefore but they don't negotiate and have collective agreements in people's industries so the first kind of point that came out was culture change and a focus on what you need to achieve so that whole idea of right well we're going to achieve a hundred thousand and this is what we need to do one of the other smaller unions had a had a similar didn't have a hundred thousand as their target but they had a very kind of similar like right we are going to get this amount of members and we need to be on top of that and everything we do has to adhere to that but it is completely within a context of the collective agreements so it's not devolved from you know it's not divorced from that it's not just membership for membership sake it is we need these agreements to to kind of buttress the collective agreements so it's therefore it's kind of squaring the organizing servicing trade-off it's not organising at the expense of servicing. No. Organising, breed servicing, servicing supports organising. I, I did not get that feel that there was that discussion between organising and servicing. And what made that really clear was that one of the things that Unionen had said was that their research had said that they needed to stop being helpers in distress and being seen as improvers of the work well, life. Well, that's, that's really interesting because, I mean, if you think about some of the speakers we've had at our events, uh, I think Mike Clancy in particular specifically said we're associated with bad news, and yeah. that's, that's not good for us. Yeah, yeah. I, I really liked it. And I think the other thing was, was that they kind of looked to see what people really wanted from their unions. And how did they find that out? Uh, through market research. Um, but, I mean, we do, we do market research in, in our country. I mean, 
not like they do market research. So they actually kind of went out to members, potential members, full on in their industries. And they used it as a, as a way to understand exactly how they kind of uh, talk about themselves. So part of this culture change was about how do we talk about ourselves as organisations? How do we kind of move our, our language around from distress to improvement? I mean, that, that sounds like a, well, it sounds like an expensive project yeah it was an expensive project and the difference is obviously they have the context and the money with which they can do that that not all of us have the, the luxury of that but i still think we can take some things away from really getting to grips with how people see themselves at work and how they want to make their working lives better and how we kind of articulate that such that people how much are people really interested in the services you know like the discount insurances and all that kind of stuff the other thing that was really interesting that we heard from a couple of unions was the the kind of shift then from you know here are the services we provide and here is the insurance we provide to actually everybody's job is about recruitment and we have to do that above all else we have to recruit and union education programs being actually geared and tailored to that so the first sort of training people are getting is Here's how you recruit other people. And what I really liked was there was a really small insurance union who had, they have like these little booklets for their reps as part of their training group. And they had a thing saying, if you've only got 10 minutes, this is what you can do. If you've only got 20 minutes, this is what you can do. If you've only got 30 minutes, this is what, yeah, I really liked it. It was really, you know, we always used to talk about bite-sized tasks when we did organizing training. And it just felt very instinctively like that. So, uh, and the last thing was around the, the the fact that unions needed to spend money to do that. And they needed to also think outside the box. So one of the things that was really great was we went to see the ad agency that came up with Like a Swede and they talked us through the process of coming up with Like a Swede. And they also talked us through the process of doing the work they did with Unionen. And they said, it's not about... Unionen had originally come to them and said, we need to get 100,000 new members, tell us how we do that. And they had said to them, no, that's not how you want to think about it. You want to think about what people want and what people like about what you do and how you talk and create a narrative around that that appeals to people. So so they made up this whole thing about uh, a union gives you superpowers at work. And so all their branding is around the superpowers at work. Everything they do is tied into that central message. But they also did some work on mansplaining. They, they created a mansplaining hotline, but, but they had a 22% increase in women joining. For the first four hours, the phone uh, line was just men ringing up to complain about the mansplaining. <laughs> and they said that they had a, a, a plan to, in, if that actually happened. Yeah. And they turned that into another selling point of the thing. And, and therefore, there is, you know, there's the organising dividend, if yeah. you like, of, of working on that, that, that agenda. It completely. And, and I have to say, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to try and put this up on our website uh, this week. But they um, produced loads of really good uh, videos to explain the union. And one of them I loved, which was the, uh, one of the unions that come up with a, a vision it starts off with a budgie saying heaven is a place on earth and it's all pink and bright and blue and green all those really kind of millennial colors and it was so camp i just loved it so much but their tagline is until work becomes your dream 
which I thought was quite quite interesting. And then uh, Unionen had superpowers at work, so you got to see people being superheroes in their everyday life. And then they've created this other video, which actually brought tears to my eyes. It was so uh, emotive, where you just saw Unionen members in their everyday lives explaining why they're a member of Unionen. And it starts off with the president talking about how proud he is and how many people have joined and how that's we're, they're a force for good. Then you see all these members, then it finishes with um, with the pres- back of the president on his bus travelling to work again. And he says, and that's why I've got a superpower at work or something. So the way they've tied that in is really, really good. Wow. So, so superpowers, super Swedes, all stemming from recognition of, of needing to know what members want, what members like about what you do. Yeah. And, and, and concentrating on those messages. I, and I, I believe the, the Swedes are coming and the, the TCO are going to pay a ex- return visit. We have extended the visit to them and we would very much like to um, come and show kind of what we're Look, doing and how we do that. So I have to say to a, a massive thanks to Per Kohlberg and the colleagues at TCO and all the unions that we visited. It was, it was really inspiring and it was nice to be in a room full of nerds. <laughs> right. <laughs> They'll understand. They They'll will. understand. They but it was good. And Simon, some of them said that they liked listening to the podcast as well. Even better. <laughs> Even better. Of course. International. They would, they, would, they would say that. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Becky. Now, now to, to matters closer to home in, in a way, and, and Andy Hodder, I say, based in, based in Birmingham, but has done a lot of work sort of collaborating with, with academics from other countries as well, as well as looking at what's happening in, in the UK. We had a really good chat with him. We did. Uh, re- recently. Uh, and here he is. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Andy. Hello, thank you for having me. No, thanks thanks for being here. And this is the latest in our series of podcasts supported by the University of Glasgow to look at the leading academic work that's being done on employee relations and industrial relations by leading academics like like you, Andy. I'm not going to spare spare your blushes. And I think the the place to to start this particular discussion, if, if it's okay by you, is with your, you know, enigmatically named paper, Enhancing Transnational Labour Solidarity. But it was the strapline that got me, which was the unfulfilled promise of the internet and social media. In what way is this an unfulfilled promise? Okay, so there's a lot of discussion had within unions and academic circles about whether or not the internet and social media can actually lead to uh, flattening the distance between union leadership and the rank and file membership. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the articles that are being written um, by academics are saying, if you're going to target young workers, then you need to be on the internet and you need to use social media platforms because that's where young people are. Mm. Um, and then you get a lot of union officials saying, let's create a Facebook group and then that will solve the young workers problem. Mm. Uh, it, so there's the sort of the strategic issue that's coming through the academic literature and the unions that that is a, a promise. But we argue that it's unfulfilled in the sense that actually young people don't really know what unions are. So if they're going to try and find out what a union is, they're not going to type into Twitter or Facebook yeah. trade union. And if they do, what will come out is probably not going to be the union that is the right one for them. And so in that paper and some other papers that I've been working on, we analysed the content of union organisations and looked at the way in which they use social media platforms mm-hmm. to look at what kind of message is being said. And actually, they're not using it for recruitment at all. They're just using it like a a static notice board by just posting rather dry updates. Sorry to say that. Well, well, I mean, the genesis for this podcast was that that unions aren't doing podcasts. I mean, I think this is kind of really interesting, that whole idea of it's being said, 
and, and and we said it in our trade unions online uh publication that we like the five sort of areas that unions aren't kind of working on and then then you've kind of got unions going it's okay we've done it we've set up a facebook group and kind of that gap i don't know why i did that voice i apologize uh what that gap between it's just, it's, that, that, that's, that's sorry, everyone, everyone will recognize that as a hackneyed the stereotypical <laughs> hackneyed out of touch near to retirement national official you know that I mean, you've got that voice i mean not you but that, that take you know anyway so we don't anyway, carry on as i was interrupted <laughs> with my kind of great look so so we, there's an idea like we've, we've been told lots of stuff but it's being conceptualized in almost what you could conceive as a very kind of trade union bureaucratic kind of way and instead of people sort of thinking actually what are we using it for and what's the point of it we're literally just going oh we need a facebook group and yeah and you're right and i hadn't actually thought about this but who would type in trade union facebook group well, me. Yeah. And I hate Facebook. But, so it, so, but, but there, was, there was this thing, wasn't there, a few years ago where the GMB, I mean, quite a few years ago now, GMB set up the GMB Massive, which was a way of, of, of actually saying, join the GMB, you know, we're not a trade union, or we're, we, you know, we don't go under a trade union banner, so we'll call ourselves the GMB Massive, because that's the hip and trendy phrasing that was around at the time. And it kind of, it, it was very short-lived, I think. Yeah, that's um, where both Andrew and I look quizzically at that whole thing. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. Yeah. But I mean, even things like GMB. When you go on Twitter and you type in GMB, the first thing that comes up is Good Morning Britain. Yes. And so there, there's sort of issues with name association. I should qualify what I said, of course, in that there is a lot of interesting debate that's taking place between union officials mm. um, and amongst union members on social media. But that's people that are already aware of trade unionism. So it's not quite doing the same thing. So yeah. the comments that I made before were very much about the official perspective that's being put forward by the unions on, on the internet and social media. So it's almost like it's the shop front of a trade union and they um, keep it very polished. Uh, yeah. Having spoken to some union communication teams, which shall remain nameless, they have actually admitted that they've been told by their bosses, by the senior leadership of the union, to not respond to queries publicly because um, it could make them look bad if they're actually not able to deliver on what a member or an activist mm -hmm. is, is wanting to do. So in terms of their formal channels, there's not a huge amount of innovating stuff going on. But informally behind the scenes, the UCU dispute recently was a, a good yes. example of this. Yeah. There was an awful lot of activism and um, discussion and um, information sharing going on through yeah. social media. But it's almost like it's happening in a completely separate way to the official union communication channels. Yeah, that's I mean, I think really that's, that's, that's a really good example. But yeah. I mean, great example as well is my my old uh, my alma mater, the CWU. Of course, fantastic use of Facebook um, in, in terms of having virtual meetings with tens of thousands of members delivering fantastic ballot results, which is great for communications. But as you say, it's a different kind of box to organising. Yes, uh, which is really. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and really reaching out to new people, isn't it? Is that kind of the difference between people who are already going to be on Twitter, who will then go follow their union on Twitter, and people who aren't union full stop? And it's a different proposition. But I will say that the, the stuff um, with the UCU dispute that I found fascinating was just how the industrial relations community of academics took the time to just like teach everybody everything i loved it i loved it when you'd see a thread by like you or by jane or by mel which would be like right everybody so here's all the things that you've got to kind of under understand about this and it was getting really good feedback and i and i was sort of thinking 
that if these are all about non-hierarchical uh, connections that people make, actually, that those connections between members are probably going to be way more powerful than the connections between like a bland union. I'm not saying all union Twitters are bland, but you know what I mean? A kind of institutional... Sorry, Andy, go on. I was just uh, to agree with you that Mel Sims, Joe Grady at Sheffield, Jane Holgate were really the the stars from that perspective. Actually talking to young people who are not union members or young people who are further education and higher education students, as I have done, and sort of asked them, where would you go to find out about a trade union? And they said, Google. Um, I said, what about social media? And they said, well... I, I, I'm scrolling through social media so quickly it's got to be something that really does stand yeah. out and how would it get onto my feed in the first place yeah. and that's so that, that there are as you yeah. rightly pointed out these are s- separate issues organising is one thing having member to member communication utilising the platforms yeah. is another yeah I mean it ties into something that I've, I've been feeling with growing conviction for a long time which, which is it's not a case of reaching out to young members as a specific cohort it is making trade union trade unions, trade unionism, part of their everyday living experience. So, of course, they'll be a member. Why wouldn't they be a, be a member? But switching horses a little bit, Andy, another paper that, that, that you've written is called Walking the Tightrope, which I think is yet to be, be published. But that's all about, as I understand it, the balance between the control that is exerted over young member sections in trade unions and the autonomy those young member sections need to have. Now, I mean, I know you've done lots of work with PCS, I used to be the, the national officer responsible for young members in the CWU. I, you know, I, you know, I, I absolutely get the difficulty of achieving that balance. What, what were the things that came out of that bit of research? Okay, so it's a, it's a question of innovation beyond structures and the difference between um, having a high level of formal structures inside the union and actually giving young people the space to become active and find out what they can and what they're able to do themselves. Um, that particular paper is a, a comparative piece of research which looks at... Um, the Retail Action Project, which is a worker centre in the USA, looks at uh, one of the French trade unions operating in hospitality and looks at the case of the PCS as one of the most active young member sections in the UK. Each of those three labour organisations had a very specific approach to the issue of, of dealing with, one, with young workers. In the French case, um, it's quite evident that they just treat them as workers rather than the fact that they're young because often the problem that a lot of us I say us, academics, trade unionists, makers, is dealing with young people as one big blob that they're all going to think the same, they're all going to do the same as each other. And and I think that's often a mistake. Um, But by treating them as as just workers and and looking at their interests as workers rather than young workers, they actually found that they were able to get them more active and involved in the union and not patronise them. Um, I think that's often the problem in, in the UK and the US in that Young worker initiatives, when they are deployed by unions, can be quite patronising in terms of language and tone. Um, so that was quite an interesting finding from the French case in the sense that giving them the, the the space to make their own mistakes, to actually say, you know, we want to do this, um, we want to increase our bargaining power inside this particular company, and by just treating them as they would uh, a 40-year-old or 50-year-old who wanted to improve the terms and conditions, that made them feel empowered it gave them a sense of ownership rather than saying actually you just go go off to the young members group so i've got a very quick question before you go on to the other ones which is so in that particular case did the union think we'd like to get more young people involved it's in the back of our minds and we will uh just 
sort of maybe target or identify young people to be active, but we won't make it look so obvious? Or was it just by happenstance that it that was young people that got involved because they were treated the same as everybody else? As, as far as I'm aware, I, I didn't do that particular yeah. field work myself, but it, it was just by happenstance. Oh, that's um, interesting. In the sense that it was all almost more organic in the way in which young people got involved. Um, you compare that to, to what happened in the Retail Action Project in the States, and because it wasn't a union and it was a worker centre, that was a deliberate strategy to target young people who worked in um, fashion re- fashion stores. Yeah. And there's a high level of turnover, um, all the same problems that we have in, in retail in this country as well, but actually by saying they branded themselves, and I stress these are not my words, as a, a hip and trendy organisation <laughs> that was organically cool, in inverted commas, and... Uh, that had resonance with the young people and they they put on workshops and they gave training and they, they offered basic legal advice to these young people rather than selling the, the union message. Yeah. Um, so you've got two sort of real extremes there. Somewhere in the middle of this, I would categorise the approach of PCS, which um, is almost an approach of what, what we'd call managed activism. That is the sense that the union leadership yeah. recognise that they want to bring more young people in and they... They manage them in the sense that they help them along through that. So the PCFCR Members Network is part of the organising department of the union mm. and they have an active National Young Members Committee. They have regional Young Members Committees. Um, they have developed systems whereby young members can act as advisory committees to the ma- their main national bargaining um, group executive committee. So they provide advice and guidance and um, are often taken quite seriously. I think increasingly in the 10 to 12 years of PCS having a young members network they have been taken more and more seriously because it has been seen to be a progression route into the wider union structures and and very effective and identified as that yes very much identified as that of course the danger of such an approach is that if you get one or two young activists that are very good because there is this agenda coming through unions as to identifying potentially really good young activists that they can be pressured in terms of um, identified as a celebrity. Um, so one of the officials said to me, sometimes we make a bit of a celebrity of our young members, which can potentially lead, lead to burnout. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, burnout is always a risk. In my experience, in the CW, and the idea and the idea about it being a well-established developmental succession plan, as it were, there's a very fine line between saying you've got, you've got that, that route to you've got something like a leadership academy, which you know for some people in the trade union movement is a real problem because you could argue it, it cuts against the idea of, dem- of democracy, of certain ideas of democracy. Mm. But on the other hand, where do you get your next generation of leaders? It's 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 an ongoing debate. It's a fascinating, fascinating area. Just to sort of add to that a little bit in terms of. Is it the next generation of leaders, or is it the current generation of union activists? Which should is, be should be the current, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> which, which which is a debate that is often had within unions as well. For today and tomorrow, uh, as abso- we used to say in the CWU. Absolutely, um, but you know, so I guess the point of that paper then was to look at the different ways in which union organisations and worker centres have tried to um, give workers space to different levels and to different degrees. Yeah. Uh, what we found was. Each one was successful, so there's no one best way, of course, as there never is with organising to, to do this, but there are uh, various lessons that can be learned from each of the case studies. I mean, I often thought that the parallel for me almost is not necessarily my experience of being in self-organised women groups within the trade union movement, but actually doing union learning and how there was a, a, a lot 
you know, Union Loan would say, like, we're getting more women coming through as reps, as, as ULRs, and we're getting more uh, black activists coming through as ULRs. So therefore, you know, different kind of progression routes. But what I found as an officer and working with those uh, reps was that there was, a, there were like four different barriers before they could actually get into the kind of the wider sphere. The, you know, the first one was that they weren't taken as seriously by the kind of wider negotiating committee because they were just doing learning stuff. There wasn't, wasn't necessarily a, an easy uh, connection made between learning being on the bargaining agenda. So it was kind of seen as like the person yeah. that put on yeah. the Indian head massages as opposed to actually we have to negotiate on our training and development just like we negotiate on, on everything else. And then, and but I also, I kind of think though, that it was self-selecting in that fashion because people were saying, oh, you don't want to do like the hard or the difficult bits of trade unionism, you can go off and do that. So I thought it kind of siloed people and didn't, and so it, it appeared like it was a progression, but it wasn't really because people weren't getting the skills they needed in order to kind of yeah. go on. And I can think of one ULR that I worked with who then went on to run for national president. She was like the exception exception rather than the rule do you know what i mean yeah. i think it's possibly because they were just seen as learning reps rather than union learning reps and, yeah. and whether or not there is a u in a ulr is a is an interesting yeah, debate that takes that's place a good debate in oh, itself, but also it? that takes us back to uh, like oh, back in the day when we were debating whether they should be lrs or ulrs indeed but, um, <laughs> in, in terms of the, the young members structures yeah. i think uh, pcs is particularly good at avoiding that um in, in the way in which they make sure that it is taken very seriously from across all the different levels. Um, other unions, of course, have uh, mixed approaches to these different things. So. Well, I mean, what does success look like? Success, success comes in many, many shapes, shapes and sizes on this. You know, all increasing youth activity, for example, is, is a good thing. I would, I, I would say, but it's kind of like, then where do you go next? You know, do you have young young people, young members contesting for positions on the national executive, contesting officer positions? Do you make sure that they, they have a rounded kind of trade union induction or education? Uh, you know, what does kind of, it's, it's you know, it's... 86% um, of reps are over the age of 40. And that leads into the debate about reserved seats and whether or not young people should have reserved seats, etc. Um, it also it also leads into the question that, that Gavin Kelly of Resolution, Resolution Trust uh, <laughs> posed to us when we spoke to him a, a month or so ago. Uh, and, you know, he, he said, well, look, you know, Trade unions need to recruit young members at double the rate they're recruiting at the moment just to stand still over the next eight, eight years. So, and so therefore the kind of the issue is how do you do that, especially when the research that, that, that we've done and that you've, you've been part of consistently says for all the fact that we're living in a, a digital age, people want like face-to-face -face contact. Yeah, and, and certainly when I've been speaking to young people, both union members and not, they have also said very much that they would prefer face-to-face -face conversation it's much easier than explaining something um it's much easier if something's explained to you verbally rather than the potential for misreading an email or, or not seeing a, a social media post or, or or a whole host of different reasons and the problem is the face-to-face -face communication takes much more time it's yeah. much more resource intensive perhaps the way we should be thinking about this is that unions need to recruit more members full stop rather than just young members and Learning, learning from some of the examples we said, and, and rather than having initiatives that are targeting young people, particularly because they are young people, and, and pigeonholing them and, and getting them stuck potentially in their young members groups, 
why not just sort of say, right, okay, well, let's get more people into the union that are, and, and target the young people, yeah. but not target them through young members' stretches? See, I've often made the, the point, and I will, I will die on my sword for this point. I, I, you, you all kind of uh, got conviction on certain things. This is the thing that I feel I have conviction on, which is that the areas where young people work tend to be the areas that are vastly under-unionised. So I would rather put the chicken before the egg and say we need an industrial strategy to organise these sectors and then think about what it means to be young, not necessarily think young blanket. And I think that's where unions that have been very successful with their young member structures also tend to be the ones in organised workplaces, which to me goes to show that if you're you're visible, it's almost, don't you ever feel like you're continually having the same conversation of saying to people, do you know what, if your union is visible and people have a rep that they respect and they trust and who is trained and knows what they're talking about, then young people join at the same rate as older workers because somebody also takes the time to demonstrate to them what a union actually is. Absolutely, and a, a good, good example of the approach that you just mentioned is, of course, the Bakers Union. Yeah. And in, in that they are having a, an active strategy to unionise particular workplaces and companies. And then as a consequence of that, what does it mean to be a young worker in these mm. organisations? Um, and, yes, the majority of the, the workers in those industries, in those companies, are young. Yeah. But that's a, a secondary fact. Yeah. Uh, and it's about rebuilding or regrowing the union movement full stop yeah and then dealing with the different groups of workers but what i would also kind of i mean having said all of that the other thing that is in my mind is uh, technically i'm still counting as a millennial which i think is hilarious i'm the millennial cusp but (laughs) everybody's looking at me like laughing from like what but like i've got friends who are in their 20s who have a vastly different work experience for me because when I left university, there there were jobs. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm not saying every job I've had has been, like, a, a, a permanent contract, but there, broadly, it was easier to get your foot. It was easier to buy a house. It was I mean, Even when I first started, it, I felt like it was tough. And now I look at my younger friends and I think, God, it feels even tougher. And so I think there are some kind of... Str- structural changes that are happening more to younger workers than they are to older workers but i think it's still the kind of the the, the reasons behind them are still the same the 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 kind of uh it, it's just people have like lost their hope and lost their idea of what well that's that's what the survey that's what survey after survey that we we've once we've been involved in or we've been asked to review have been published and we've spoken about on the, on the podcast have found which is Young workers, young workers today don't feel they can exercise influence over the things that make their condition precarious. So, you know, how how do you how do you give people hope back hope? And I mean, the the, the, the you know, almost unbelievable thing is that already you can see the labour market in these key sectors tightening dramatically as predominantly EU nationals go back to their you know their, their home countries ahead of, ahead of Brexit. If labour is tight, it should become more expensive. Yeah. You should see wage rises increasing, but wages uh, wages are still way, way behind where they were before the crash in two, 2008. Productivity is still way down, partly because la- you know, labour is not expensive enough to be worth investing in by many employers. How do we break out that cycle? That's a, that's a, a macroeconomic question as well as a trade union organising yeah. question. Except, I think all of us in this room would agree, the best bet 
for workers of any age to get a better deal at work is to be in a union. Yeah. So on that idea of giving hope, Andy, look at that. Oh, nice. smooth. So smooth, Becky. So smooth. Uh, if you could do one thing, uh, what would it be? What would you think? Where should we be going? Perfect union. Take your pick. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the question changed track in the middle yeah. of that. Uh, yeah, uh, in that's, the how, that's, that's how I do negotiations. <laughs> people kind of get a bit lost and I'm like, right, I'll just squeeze that one in and see if it makes a difference. But so what would you do? If, what's you know, the one thing you'd do? To do inside unions it's themselves yeah. would be, I think, giving more space for young people, be that uh, young members, young activists, young full-time officials across the board. And that will involve a little bit of a change in the way in which people think about unions. That might require some of the more established, shall we say, reps, activists, full-time officials to, to give up a little bit of their responsibility um, and, and actually recognise that there is a, a real need to, to change the way in which people think about things. Too, too often have members and activists said to me, Oh, I couldn't possibly recruit a young person. I don't know how to talk to them. And you think, well, they're human beings. So actually making yeah. it um, higher up in the priority and trying to make people take it much more seriously uh, at all levels is, is something which would be a, a very useful starting point. How, of course, that is done is, is another question. <laughs> well, you did call? ask me. Yeah. If, uh, um... <laughs> I think fine. This guy. But actually, do you know, what? I think that's a really a really useful and valid point because i remember when i started as an official which is getting on to quite a few years ago now i was always seen as like the young enthusiastic one which is pretty much my school report since i started school and people always attributed it to my youth and that used to annoy the hell out of me because i was like no yeah. actually this is my innate character i'm just not somebody who I'm somebody who wants to get stuff done, not wait five years until a, a committee has sorted it. Of course. I mean, I think the key thing is in the in this day and age where people get frustrated and, and it's very difficult, unionism is very difficult. But having that enthusiasm, it doesn't matter what your age you are, whether yeah. you're 18 or 65, if you're really enthusiastic and you can actually get people interested in what you're saying and interested in the message, you don't have to be young to engage young people. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is something that is often for, forgot about at all. So, yes, getting more getting unions to give more space to young people, but at the same time recognising that it's it's something that everyone should be done. Uh, yeah. it, should be, it should be done by everyone. It's not a question of... Uh, it goes back to the you know, organisers don't negotiate, negotiators don't organise. Well, actually, it's all a trade union issue. We should be doing, doing it. it. It's it, it, it's talent spotting, isn't it? Britain's unions have got talent. Oh, not this again. <laughs> <laughs> this came up when we were talking to Kevin McQuire, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Oh. Does that make you Simon Cowell? <laughs> oh. Oh. Andy's coming back. <laughs> and with that comment, Andy comes back. Oh. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Um... Andy, we, we, we like to we like to talk to our, our academic guests um, uh, for their views about about which of their their peers, their, their colleagues should should we and our listeners you know look take a look at who should we be reading avidly um, who, who's who, who's particularly kind of on your radar at the moment? So there's some really good work being done by a lot of um, new scholars to the to the field. Um, in particular, there's three that spring to mind. Alex Wood at Oxford Internet Institute. Oh, yeah, we had him at our conference, didn't we? We did, yeah. yeah. He's, good, yeah, yeah. He's doing an awful lot of good work on the gig economy and, and work of voice and 
different ways in which unions and workers more generally can get their voice heard on a much broader scale. Uh, related to that, a chap called Torsten Geelin at Leicester University is doing a lot of work about union communicative power wow. and the way in which unions are actually able to harness their potential or not for engaging with workers of all ages in the digital era. And Torsten was my co-author on the paper about the unfulfilled promise of social right. media. Um, similarly, Joe Grady at Sheffield University is an excellent academic. It's, it's been, I think we mentioned Joe earlier, yeah. in terms of uh, leading the light on, on pensions and, and industrial relations and the way in which trade unions deal with pensions. Um, those three are the, the ones that spring to mind off the top of my head. Well, we'll set those up, I think. Yes. Well, we've already got one. Yes. So we'll do the other two. The other two. <laughs> Andy, thank you ever so much for spending time with us. Um, good luck with your, your future research uh, as well. And um, I think that, oh, goodness, there's a whole series of other podcasts that could spill out of this one about youth organising and digital media and so on. But There is. There is. But, <laughs> Thanks, but, Andy. Andy Holder, University of Birmingham, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, listeners, lots of food for thought in that interview with, with Andy. Uh, and if there are any of the ideas that we covered in that discussion that you think would make a good basis for a future Unions 21 podcast, then we, we'd love to hear from you and, uh, and cast your vote, as it were, in support of that. You can just email us at info at unions21.org.uk. And once again, our thanks to the University of Glasgow, whose support for this particular edition made that, made that discussion with Andy possible. And now on to the Unions 21 Commission for Collective Voice. This is a new initiative that we're launching to try and move public policy in the direction of a broad-based alliance in support of collective voice for, for workers at work. We had our launch event at the House of Commons uh, just this week, and Margaret Prosser welcomed everyone to, uh, to the event, and she was followed by Prospect General Secretary Mike Clancy, and they both now give their views about what the Commission is, why it's important, what the objectives are. So, Margaret Prosser first. Uh, I've been asked by Unions 21 to chair this commission which we're establishing in order to take a look at what we can do, ways in which we can think differently in a new way of looking at how unions can organise, how they can reach out to those members that they seem to be uh, find too difficult to reach at the moment. So uh, that's our, our task. Despite other countries in Europe recognising the vital role that unions play within the economy, this view uh, for a very long time has not been uh, replicated within the United Kingdom. And the continued exclusion of unions in addressing long-term economic business and social issues is symptomatic of a failure of the UK economy to really understand and embrace employee voice and the role workers can play in the day-to-day -day running of an organisation. I can't be the only person here who has knowledge of shop stewards or representatives in a workplace that know more about what's going on in that workplace than the manager does and certainly more than the members of the board will know. Uh, and so the, the, the waste of not engaging those people uh, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't help anybody. And the value of unions extends far wider in the economy than improving the pay and conditions of members. Unions help to raise productivity in both private and public sectors, improve skills, break down the barriers that hold people back from fulfilling their potential. And you don't have to go far to see this happening. Domestic evidence from key sectors such as manufacturing, energy, 
the automotive industry shows where a genuine partnership between unions and employers has helped improve skills and performance. Uh, if we look, for example, at uh, after the financial crash and the difficulties faced in the automotive industry, the role of the union there in working with management in negotiating altered terms and conditions to get through that financial difficulty was absolutely crucial to ensuring that the automotive industry uh, remained and was able to grow again. And of course, we're all uh, upset, sorry, disappointed, anxious about the fact that membership has fallen. We do, though, have to bear in mind and remember to say to uh, governments uh, that 6.5 million members, voluntary members of the organisation, is the largest voluntary organisation in the country. So that we're still talking about a lot of people. The challenges acute in the private sector where only 13% of workers are members of a union and only 15% covered by an agreement between employer and union to negotiate collectively for terms and conditions. The vast majority of all private sector employees have no collective voice in the workplace. On the other side of the coin, there seems to be a growing consensus across the political spectrum that there's something broken about British capitalism. It's not productive enough, doesn't spread wealth, wealth fairly through the British economy, and it is too prone to the kind of corporate short-termism and failure that we have seen recently, for example, with the collapse of Carillion. We're grappling with the societal impacts of cha a changing world, world of work through automation, freelancing, and changing attitudes around the expectations of a workplace. All of this is an unhealthy situation for the UK, especially as we go into the unknown realms of Brexit. As Union tw Unions 21 launches its new commission on collective voice in the 21st century, unions know that they need to make the case for a fair deal at work and for how worker voice will be a key to shared prosperity. Everything comes back to collective bargaining and collective voice. And the numbers which you heard um, in terms of the private sector coverage, which also impact attitudes to public sector uh, terms and conditions as well, show you the territory that we face and that on our watch now, we've got to do something about it. The way I put this quite a lot lately, particularly to less um, engaged audiences of this, maybe sometimes when talking to HR directors and others, is that, you know, will you be happier when the last trade union office turns its light off? Is that what you want to see achieved by public policy? Is the economy completely shorn of trade union influence something you want for your kids? Now, to that moment, they think, mm, unions are sometimes going to pain in the arse, but we certainly don't want that. We don't want a situation where there isn't an influence, where there isn't a collective voice, and if necessary, there isn't a countervailing power. If you get them to at least think like that, the next thing is then, well, what's the role of public policy in stimulating collective voice and collective bargaining? Because it's been some time, I mean, I read about it in Labour history, about it in the 1970s and so on, and the social contract and so on. That, what that journey over three decades shows us is that at 13% in the private sector, if we don't arrest this, we're going to be like the United States quicker than we would want. And look at the decisions coming out of the United States, others will be looking at in terms of union security measures and the recent children attacking that. So globally, 
there are attacks on collective voice. Equally, there are still bastions where economies are operated successfully with high levels of collective agreements. In fact, some would say uh, more successfully in terms of uh, their capitalism, their productivity, and of course also their redistributive um, policies. We were in Sweden just last week. You know, fascinating to be in a place where they think they've got issues to deal with where there's 80% union membership and they've got 90% collective agreement. I mean, I'd like to have the problem. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't we all? But what's interesting is that that approach is deeply rooted in Swedish society. Swedish business see the benefits of it. Swedish government see the benefits of it. And whilst there may be some changes here and there, essentially Swedish society is bought into the model. Now we are so far away from that. The journey we've been on over three decades or more has seen the diminution of collective voice to a point where to link to another important debate, I think this economy is uniquely vulnerable to the consequences of Brexit in terms of workplaces and countervailing power, and it's uniquely vulnerable in relation to the next generation of technology insertion, Industry 4.0, AI, machine learning, who puts the rhythm in the algorithm. And if we have in this country uh, another decade of more of atomization of people at the workplace, then I think the societal and civic consequences of this are quite fearful. Not uncertain, they're quite fearful for the next generation of people. So this is our watch. The Commission is about doing something on our watch together, bringing together a whole range of experiences. As Margaret said, we like this to be cross-party because we would like to convince people that collective voice is an expression of citizenship, it's actually a fundamental right that should be owned by all political parties, even if some political parties may cleave to it more than others. So, Margaret uh, Prosser and Mike Clancy setting out our stall, as it were, what we expect and hope the Commission for Collective Voice will achieve. And you'll be hearing a lot more about the Commission's work on future podcasts and uh, there'll be up-to-date reports uh, posted on our website, www.unions21.org.uk. Well, that's just about it for this uh, episode of the Juniors 21 podcast. Thank you very much indeed for your company. And please, if you like what you if you like what you hear, if you don't like what you hear, if you want to hear more of certain things or less of certain things, we can only act on what you tell us. You can email us at info at unions21.org.uk. Your views are very important to us, as is your opinion. So whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, if they've got a rating system, please be sure to check into that and give us the most stars you possibly feel we deserve, the, the most stars you possibly can. Those ratings really do make a difference. So until the next podcast, uh, this is me, Simon Sapper, on behalf of myself and Becky, saying thanks ever so much for listening, and goodbye. Unions 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. Production assistant was Henry Skews. This edition was made possible thanks to the support of the University of Glasgow. It was a Makes You Think production.